0: Hey, we're arriving at what has become the last installment in the Book of Daniel series. I was originally going to divide this specific study today into two parts, but I just couldn't do it. So we could finish up the Book of Daniel today, or we could have left you with about a 10-minute cliffhanger for next week and say, stay tuned next week to the answer to the question, what is the second abomination of desolation? But then we would have just had a Ten-minute service next week, so I decided we're just going to get right on through there. So instead of saying "Hike up your skirts, gentlemen," we're going to run today. I have a new phrase for you. You ready? Mm -hmm. Cinch up your saddles and dig in your spurs. We got a gallop today. You ready to go, cowboys? All right. There were two kingdoms, as we have been studying in chapters eleven and twelve, and if you've been paying attention, and I'm sure you have then all of this section has been one large section uninterrupted in the original manuscript. It was not until about the 13th century when we had all the chapter headings and divisions that we're looking at in most of our Bibles today. So we're starting to see that there was a lot of juxtaposition back and forths because of the chiastic structure between two specific main event people, Antiochus IV a.k.a. Antiochus Epiphanes, or his nickname to the people in his uh, contemporary era was Epimenes, which means crazy man. (laughs) Um, And then the Antichrist was the second major figure. So we know that there was a near future event and a farther future event, and those are the two things we've been looking at very consistently through the second portion of Daniel's book. We got to see in the first half of the book, how faithful living for God can result in amazing things as people continue to put him first in their lives. And God showed his faithfulness to them as they were faithful to him. It was a wonderful story, some great stories that we think about in the first six chapters. But this last chapter, seven through 12, it's a real head scratcher at times. But what we've been doing in seeing all these super sleuthing tools, text, context, new text, chiastic structure, apocalyptic literature style, the couplets sometimes in which the order can be reversed, all brought together with the context of the New Testament, which really helps us see much more clearly where this is headed. It's helped us find a better grip, get a better grip on what's happening with this. Here are two schools of thought related to chapter 12, and both are fairly common. One says that chapter 12, the whole chapter, talks about the Antichrist, that this is all a farther future event. Second school of thought is that part of the chapter talks about the Antichrist, and because of the chiastic structure, some of it's doubling back again and coming back up in history in the timeline to talk some more about Antiochus IV. And that is something that's very difficult to grab uh, a hold of and get an answer to, and I'm gonna try to answer what I think personally this means, but, Here's what we should know. Regardless of which one it is, we know that Antiochus becomes a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. So there's not so much difference here that if one or the other, it's not gonna blow everything out of the water in terms of what we think about in terms of our far-reaching reason for learning this information. And we're really gonna see that toward the end of today's message, as we look to see, well, what does Jesus say about the great tribulation? What does he have to say about the end times events? Because we wanna take his word as the final word. So we're gonna see now that as we're applying our super sleuthing questions, that there's one great big question that starts to come into play. And that starts to come in with the options that I just presented to you. Option one, that everything relates to Antichrist, or option two, that some relates to Antiochus and some to the Antichrist. I personally think that those who chose option two they kind of push their own agenda pretty strongly into the scriptures, and they're ignoring a very strong couple of words in context here in verse eight, which says, what will the outcome of all this be? How will this finally end? We're going to see that when I start reading through that passage in just a minute. Those who think verses 10 through 12 are talking about the end of the reign of Antiochus miss the important all this question, because that in context is preceded by several verses that have to talk about what's happening in the very end time. So my personal inclination, just to let you know, this is where I personally am leaning pretty heavily, is to accept option one that the entire chapter is really talking about the Antichrist and the very end of the final era, leading to the Great Tribulation, and then the return of Christ. I'll talk about the number of days in verses 11 and 12, but I'll be honest in saying I don't really fully comprehend their meaning, enough to say definitively, I know without a doubt exactly what they mean. I'll present some options for us to consider about those numbers, and then we'll look to see what Jesus says on the subject, because I think what we're finding out, especially through all this, is that he's where we have to look for the final word, and if we don't understand it all, that's okay. In fact, that's kind of the point. (laughs) Some of what Jesus says helps us understand that's kind of the point, Because what I've said before is that through the clear lens of history looking back in time, we can see definitively some things that happened that were predicted ahead of time that came true in Antiochus, but they didn't know exactly what they meant until after they had happened. I think that's setting us up for something very similar. There are certain things that we have a general idea. We can know when approximately it's going to be happening, but we won't know definitively for sure until a couple of big events happen, And then it's going to become very apparent. And so it's okay if we don't know all the details until that is finally revealed, but we do know it is going to be revealed. So here's the big first question. Let's work our way through this amazing passage and I'll comment along the way. Daniel 12, 1 through 13. I'm starting all the way back at 1 because we need the context for what I'm looking at here in this question. At that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise at that time is referring to this horrible situation in Jerusalem where things are going to really turn bad, and it's heading into what most people would consider the great tribulation, not just a tribulation. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then, which means there's nothing like it in history. But at that time, your people everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered it doesn't mean saved physically by the way and i mentioned that last week delivered can mean something even better because they're delivered into eternity into the presence of god in the great separation that happens and the reason we know that that's what delivered means here is because of abundant other passages especially even in the new testament that lets us know that's the great deliverance that we have to look forward to if people misapply that they will think that the prophets got it really wrong, that Daniel got it wrong, because God promised to deliver these people from the No, he didn't promise that. So make sure that we keep all this in mind in context with the big picture and the New Testament. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, euphemism for being dead, will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness, which means that somehow there is still time for them to be able to do that, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge a lot of people who have been going here and there trying to increase knowledge even about prophecy, (laughs) and I've read a lot of kooky things in this last couple of weeks. Some people who have been going here and there have come up with some bizarre, um, just fiction is all I can say. I I just don't know where they even come up with some of their ideas related to that. I think that by using our super sleuthing tools and really good exegetical tools or scholarly approach to interpretation, we can have a pretty good idea where this is headed, especially as we start to consider Jesus' words. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, meaning angels, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them, one of the two angels, said to the man clothed in linen. Who's the man clothed in linen? This would be the incarnate Christ who was above the waters of the river. There's a good clue. How long will it be before these astonishing things, these wonders, these incredible events are fulfilled? That's the question of one of these angels. Now another note, because of the context of the first four verses of chapter 12, this clearly refers to the reign of the Antichrist at this time of distress, the likes of which we've never seen before and will never see again it's clear that the topic of discussion here has to do with the very end, including this great separation, some to everlasting life, others to shame, and everlasting contempt. This signals the end of the unprecedented horrible events being predicted, especially with an onslaught toward Jerusalem and Israel, although it's going to encompass the whole world, including all believers, all Christians, and then the beginning of the thousand-year or millennial reign. Remember, too, way back at the beginning when I said There's some dispute about whether that's a literal thousand years, or whether this is a euphemism, um, one of those exaggerated things to suggest that it's unending. Because many times when thousand is used talking about God's character and God's attributes, it means unlimited. I'm not quite sure. If it's a thousand year literal reign, that's okay with me. If it's unlimited reign, that's okay with me. I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out because of Jesus Christ. Gonna get an amen? Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. The question, how long before these things are fulfilled, is a bit vague at first glance, at face value. It sounds a little bit like the question could be asking, how long from now, from when Daniel is still alive on the earth, until these things take place? But let's use our tools of context and the new text to see how we need to interpret the starting point for the how long question, okay? We gain context to the starting from when question by the phrase, these astonishing things in verse six. What astonishing things are we talking about again? The great tribulation, the likes of which the world has never seen, the deliverance of God's people, a great separation into two categories, one destined for eternity in hell, the other in heaven, And then we also gain context by the way the incarnate Jesus answers this question, this is all always very helpful when you start to understand how does Jesus answer certain questions it helps you understand what he knew that they were asking. That's how we know the angel is not asking how long will it be from now, meaning the days of Daniel until these things are finished Jesus doesn't say anything about that in his answer and his answer is in verse seven so let's look ahead at that. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, the incarnate Christ, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it, meaning the rule of this man who exalts himself, the rule of the Antichrist, will be for a time, times, and half a time. There's that phrase again. We believe that that translates into three and a half years. Time meaning a year. Two times added to that is three, and then half a time. Then, and that's implied in the syntax in the original language, when the power of the holy, the holy people, meaning God's people, has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. So what's the starting point then? Jesus' answer gives us the context to see that the angel is really asking, namely, how long from the start of these horrible events, from the start of the Antichrist's reign of terror on the earth, until the end of this reign of terror? Uh Now, question number two, what will the outcome of all this be then? I heard, verse 8, but I did not understand. Man, I've been reading through a lot of this, and that couches very accurately how I've been feeling much of the time on the first couple of readings through this stuff. I read it, but I don't understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And this is an important verse this is the one that causes me to think that the entire chapter is talking about the Antichrist and the very end of the era before Christ returns to usher in his millennial reign or thousand-year reign or unending reign. The question includes the words, all this, which sounds like he means all this. <laughs> the Antichrist, the persecution of God's people, invading the Holy Land, using counterfeit signs and wonders to convince many that he is Jesus, all this that has encompassed in what they've been talking about leading up to the section. Now, if you read some of these things, and you're still scratching your head a little bit, and you say, but Lord, you've given me some answers, but I'm still not just exactly sure that I fully understand. That's okay. You're not alone. (laughs) Even Daniel felt that way quite a bit, in fact. But look what God says to Daniel. This is comforting. It's good for us. Who is still feeling perplexed, Daniel is still feeling troubled, by the answers he has received. Look at verse nine. He replied, go your way, Daniel, and go and live your life. Because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days, 1,290 days. Hmm. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Okay, so Daniel is saying, I don't understand. He goes, that's okay, Daniel, go your way. The wise will understand. It's okay if you don't understand completely. The wise will understand, but seal these things up It's all right. And then he goes into more detail, which if I were Daniel, I'd be going, you just told me not to worry about it. Now you're giving me more detail. It can be very perplexing. Look at verse 13. As for you, Daniel, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. It's good news. In other words, he says, you've done exactly what I've called you to do. And you've been faithful. Good for you. You may not understand some of this stuff until you're in my presence in heaven. And if so, that's okay. Because everything that I'm putting down right here through your experiences is going to help other people. And they're going to gain hope. They're going to gain strength to keep living faithfully until I return again. And they're going to keep recognizing that they need to keep watch because we don't know when he's coming back again. And that's okay. It's okay if you don't understand, Daniel. He really didn't understand fully, but we too have to keep living our lives. I've seen so many people who really get wrapped up into prophecy in the Bible that they become immersed in it and really obsessed with it to the point that they start trying to feed in modern day interpretations. They start saying, okay, I know what the King of this country is, and I know what the president of that country is, and I'm going to start plugging in specific names. I believe without a doubt that these are the ten nations that are talked about in Revelation, so who are going to be the three that are going to be killed off so that the Antichrist can come? They're really trying to read, I think, too much into it too soon, because we're not supposed to know certain things until Christ reveals things to us, and then it will become abundantly clear. And we'll see in his words toward the end of today's lesson that when he does reveal that, it's going to be unmistakable, and we can hold out until then. Because if we knew ahead of time, we might start slacking off or taking our eyes off of our real purpose, which is to reach the lost and to glorify God in everything that we do. So Daniel can keep living his life. We need to keep living our lives. We need to keep trusting fully in God, knowing that he who has remained faithful in our walk as well will be faithful in these future events as well. God reiterated to Daniel that throughout the great tribulation to come, whenever that happens to be, many would be purified or made spotless and refined through the trials on earth. Those who are refined are those who place their faith in God. They are the ones who allow God to keep refining them since they are connected to him like branches to the vine, as it says in John 15, 5. God then told Daniel to do something we need to hear today. He said that the wicked will not understand. The wicked shall continue to act wickedly. Some people are not gonna get it. Some people are gonna reject Christ. They're gonna reject the gospel, even though it's proclaimed clearly to them. I mean, look at the Pharisees in Jesus' day. He was standing right there in front of them. He performed signs and wonders. He healed a paralytic man and forgave his sins, and they were scratching their heads and saying, well, who is he who says he can forgive sins? If they can miss him and he's standing right in their presence, don't you think other people can miss the gospel, even if it's clearly expressed? We need to clearly sound the trumpet call of the gospel. We need to clearly tell people about Jesus Christ, but it's up to the Holy Spirit to draw them to himself, and if they choose through their free will to reject it, we can't make them do what they won't do for themselves we're to be the messengers. Since we know the ultimate outcome, however, we can rest assured that when our work on earth is over, if we've been faithful to the call on our lives to live our lives as a testimony to Jesus Christ and his faithfulness, his everlasting love that's being demonstrated to us in our lives, if we've done that, if we've reflected him to other people, uh, then we can breathe easy because we can rest ultimately because we're going to rise and, in, and we're going to be given our inheritance because we're going to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, I would start going right into verses 11 and 12, but I want to keep the carrot dangled a little longer because there's some other things that I think we need to see before I start launching into some of these options about the numbers of days. So before I tackle verses 11 and 12 and some of those perplexing numbers, let me take us to a New Testament passage. And now we interrupt this Old Testament passage to bring you a New Testament passage where Jesus talks about the great tribulation, Jesus' own words. Now, I'm gonna give quite a few of these words here from Matthew 24, then we're gonna come back to the Old Testament again, because I'm saving the best for last, (laughs) because Jesus' final word is gonna come from the end of this chapter in Matthew 24. If you've got your Bible handy there, you wanna open it to Matthew 24, please do so, that would be great, starting with verse one. Now, this is a little setup for this. Jesus is toward the end of his ministry. He has been seeing how people have completely abused what was supposed to be happening in the temple and the kind of temple worship. Remember, he had overthrown the money changers tables inside the temple. He's saying, you're turning this into a den of robbers, a den of iniquity, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. You're supposed to be putting God first, and instead you're putting commerce and your own self-interests first. You're completely missing the point about what worship is supposed to be there. So basically, Jesus is just really getting ready to usher in the final events leading up to his crucifixion, and he's proclaiming some difficult truths about this stuff. So as he's leaving the temple after these kinds of tumultuous events, he's walking away when his disciples come up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Uh, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Now, remember, this is present tense there. This is, I'm putting you in the setting. This is Jesus and his disciples. They're at the temple. This is present tense. That's important. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Now, Joy and I visited, the temple, and it's huge. Now Solomon's temple was built later, this Ottoman Empire, some other things happened in the meantime, but the temple, even back then, those were huge stones. It would not have been an easy task to throw down the temple, but they could do it. They could bring in soldiers and do that. Now the temple walls and the walls all around old Jerusalem, they probably would not have torn all of those down. Some of those things are still intact today, but they certainly could have raised the temple, R-A-Z-E-D, not raised as in Erecting it, but tearing it down all the way down to the foundation. And they did so in 70 AD. We know that by looking through history, the clear lens of history. So he's saying, Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every, and when he says every, he means every single one will be thrown down. We saw some piles of rubble, including some of these great stones that were the size of a Volkswagen bug. And they had been torn down, and they left some of that rubble there as a reminder of what happened in history. That happened 40 years, and 40 years is also a really important number in New Testament history, but 40 years after Jesus predicted that, 70 AD, they did tear it down just as he predicted. Now, verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is right across the Kidron Valley, which is not that big, Joy and I walked from the top to the bottom. It took us 20 minutes to get from the top to the bottom, and there we were in the Garden of Gethsemane looking across to the east gate where some say Jesus is going to come back again when he returns. The disciples came to him privately on the Mount of Olives. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Context, what had just happened? What was he just talking about before they took that short hop across the Kidron Valley and went over to the Mount of Olives, tearing down the temple, right? Question two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Those are two separate questions. This is vital to trying to understand why Jesus is starting to go back and forth between these two questions. Some people try to say that they're trying to put those two events together. That's not what he's saying here. It's very perplexing to read it in English if we're not used to the chiastic structure and parallelism the way that I was talking to you about, which is so important in understanding why they would be happening here. Verse 4, Jesus answered, and he answers the second question first, which is what happens a lot in interview situations, like you'll see a press conference and somebody will throw two questions at them and they'll say, okay, the second one is very vital, let me tackle that one first and then I'll come back to the first question. That's what Jesus is doing here, and we get the context, by the way, he answers it. Watch out that no one deceives you. Hmm. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. What's the second question? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? It sounds like he's addressing that question, does it not? Because he is. He's answering the second question first. Many are going to come between the time Jesus is crucified, buried, and resurrected, and then ascends to be with the Father. From that time forward, until he comes again, there are going to be many other people who will come on the scene trying to claim that they are the Messiah, including the Antichrist. So this is clearly talking about this far future event. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, yep, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. It's a ways off. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I'm checking all these things off in my mind. I'm going, yep, check, check, check. A lot of these things have happened in our lifetimes, haven't they? Mm Mm-hmm. Verse 8, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Aha, this is interesting and this is important as well. It's all important, but this is really important in our context here. When do birth pains start? Well, if it's a fairly normal pregnancy, I really hope, ladies, that they don't start at the very beginning of your pregnancy because if you're having contractions back then, you've got a difficult pregnancy. Typically, what has happened in most pregnancies is it's toward the end of the pregnancy. That gestation period, is coming close to the end, and the body starts contracting and doing all the things it needs to do because God created it that way so that a baby is going to be ushered out into the world, thankfully. And by then, because things have gotten so bad, uh, from what I know from my own wife and other wives who have shared their stories, they're ready. They are so ready. Like, get this child out. So this is interesting because Christ is telling them about a far future event to say that all these difficult things including all the nations rising against nations famines earthquakes natural disasters things of that uh, wars rumors of wars all those things they're going to become greater in intensity and they're going to become closer and closer together it's going to be a great escalation worldwide leading up to this thing that we're going to become familiar with called the great tribulation then verse 9 And this is where it starts to, people start to wonder, oh, is this parallelism? He says, then, there's a word then. I had a little epiphany as I was reading through this in light of what joy and I experienced sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane looking across the Kidron Valley. Sometimes we miss the fact that many of the places where Jesus is teaching are positioned in Israel, in Jerusalem, for him to have gestured and pointed across the Kidron Valley. He could have just simply pointed with one finger and said, then, and pointed to the temple, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. He could have been switching back and forth between these two events, the now in your lifetime event and the far future event. I believe this sounds like he's talking about now in their lifetime event, and that could be part of this parallelism in the language, and I think that we may be missing some gestures there as well. Because clearly these guys were not alive by the time the Antichrist is going to come. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Well, that applies to all believers, not just to his believers. So maybe he's saying you, meaning you collectively. That's okay. That works as well. But it's interesting to think about both possibilities. And then verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be delivered or saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, now this is where it starts to think, okay, I'm getting context here. When he says, then you will be handed over in context with all that happens between 9, 10, 11, and 12, and 13, and then especially 14, I'm thinking, ah, now I'm starting to see it. This is what it starts to become three-dimensional to me. And I think, no, he's still on far future event. When he says you, he means all believers. And it means for all time. That's where it started to go. Ah, now I get it. It starts to make sense. Uh, Let's back up to 13. But the one who stands firm to the end on the gospel of Christ, on the truth of Jesus Christ, will be delivered. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then, and then, one more time, say it with me now, and then the end will come. He's pointing to a a future event, and something has to happen before that event will take place. That means that the gospel is going to be preached to all nations before he can come in and usher in his unending reign. Verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place, this temple, When you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. (laughs) What have we been studying for this last several weeks? Daniel and the abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand. Okay, let me pause right there for a second. The reader, the reader of the word, the people who have been reading these prophecies, including Daniel, which we've been studying, knows that this abomination, this detestable object, of desecration that completely desecrated the temple of God made it so heinous that no Jew would possibly worship there in the sanctuary of God. This one spoken of Daniel that Jesus is talking about is not the same one that happened with Antiochus the We know what that abomination was. That was the statue of Jupiter or Zeus, which they set up in place of the altar in the temple, and people wouldn't want to worship there, and some were forced to do so Uh, at sword point, and some of them were killed because they refused to do so, but many stood firm. That was a foreshadowing. That Antiochus event and that abomination is a foreshadowing of something that Jesus is still pointing ahead of in time in a far future event, and it's going to be so much worse than Antiochus. That's hard to believe because it was bad. I mean, it was so bad that Antiochus had his soldiers stuff cooked pork down the throats of the priests before they would kill them. the temple. That's how he was defiling the temple of God, including killing those people who represented Yahweh and were pointing people to him. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress. And when he says then, he's pointing ahead in time to this far-reaching event. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. That's how we know he's talking about the great tribulation. Then 22, if those days, what he just talked about? The great tribulation, far future. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I mentioned last week briefly, and I'll reiterate that again. This is the verse that causes me to think that Jesus is saying that these birth pains will get so bad that people will wonder if any believers can survive the devastation brought about upon Christianity, and especially on Israel, by the Antichrist. But for the sake of true believers, the elect even though many people are gonna be killed because of their faith, there's gonna be a remnant. There will be those who are left and still alive. So for their sake, for the remnant, he's gonna shorten that time. That's why I also believe that this is pushing us into saying it's not a pre-tribulation rapture. It's gonna be either mid-trib or post-trib. And a lot of good scholars today argue about whether it's mid or post, again, I'm a panmillennialist. It's all going to pan out because of Jesus Christ, and I have to be ready and be absolutely okay with whatever Jesus does. I'm going to be on board with whatever he does, and I want to be strong enough to stand firm regardless of how much of the tribulation I might have to endure if it should happen in my lifetime, and I think that's the point. All right. Some people think that Antiochus is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist, and that there's going to be this false time of peace for three and a half years, and then he's going to turn against Israel, even though he's made a peace pact with them, a peace treaty, and that's when the real tribulation begins, and that's three and a half years, so that we would only have to endure a portion of that three and a half, and if that time is shortened, then that might have to do with the 1335 days. People are very uncertain about that. I'll get into the days in just a minute. Again, there's so much controversy surrounding these things that the things that we don't know we need to just put as big question marks in the margin and say, these are not the main point. If we're uncertain about them, they're not the main point. The main point comes when we need to read Jesus' final words, because he's got the final word on everything. Verse 23, are you tracking with me? If so, say amen. Amen. All right, thanks. Hang in there. It's getting good. There's <laughs> The best is yet to come. Verse 23, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or oh, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. We know from other New Testament sources, a couple of which we'll look at, that the Antichrist is not the opposite of Christ. This is not a yin-yang sort of situation. He's the counterfeit Christ. He will use signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, an incredibly large number of people, including some people who are professing believers. And they're gonna start believing that this antichrist person is actually Jesus, but has returned to earth. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm telling you ahead of time. A lot of people are gonna start doing that. And when you see a lot of people believing that somebody else is Jesus, that's one of the big signs that it's not him. It's not me. I'm not not returned yet because all this stuff has to take place beforehand. Don't believe it. Know the signs that have been given to you so that you can use them to tell the difference between the counterfeit and the real deal. Verse 26. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be unmistakable, and it's going to be unmistakable to the whole world. When lightning strikes, and it's huge, and it's just bright, his brightness will fill the whole earth. Verse 28, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. 29, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. More predictions. And he's quoting from some of these things now. And they're very similar to the things that happened at his crucifixion. And even that serves as a foreshadowing of things to come. Because something huge and cataclysmic is going to be happening. And people are going to know it and it's going to be unmistakable. Verse 30, the first part of verse 30. Then will appear the sign of Son of Man in heaven. What's the sign of the Son of Man? Well, he's coming in the clouds. How did he ascend? Through the clouds. How's he coming back? Through the clouds. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so, it is well with my soul. Can I get another amen? Amen. Okay. Thank you for my amen corner. Now the second half of verse 30, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Why would they mourn? Because they are sinful, and especially the wicked. They're going to mourn. It's going to be a terrible day for them. This is all the earthly people, all the folks who have been worldly, who have failed to see that Jesus is the answer, and they place their faith in him, because for the believer, it's going to be Even so, Lord Jesus, come, it is well with my soul. Hallelujah. But for the people of the earth, they'll mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Reminds me of Genesis and the creation. He said he gathered all the water even before it had been gathered and separated from the firmament and then from the earth itself. And he he's going to call this one the earth, and he's going to call this one the seas. All these little droplets, all of these people who are scattered all over the earth, but he's going to gather them all together, and it's going to become a sea of believers. And it's going to be huge. Verse 32, now, and this is an important word, it signals a change in direction. Now, he says, when will this, the temple's destruction, happen? You, you hear the little shift? As he was saying, I'm going to tackle the second question first, and now I'm going to go back and tackle that first question that you were talking about. It makes so much sense when you see the context. Do you hear the change in direction? He's not only telegraphing a change in topic, but he's pointing to a place in time for now. So it's double entendre. He says, now I'm changing the subject. And now in this specific current day situation, present tense, let me get back to the first question you asked. Now, he says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. There's a sign. There's something you can tell, okay, this is a season. He doesn't say specifically, this fig tree for 362 days. He says, there's a sign, and it's a season. It's an estimate. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that the end is near. This is verse 33 right at the door. So he's saying, I'm giving you enough things to know now, in the present tense, some of the things that will happen, and you'll know that some of these things are predicting what's going to happen in your lifetime, but he's also showing that all these events are going to point ahead to this farther future event. You can tell that it's getting closer and closer, and there are some telltale signs that he's giving us, knowing that things are escalating, like those birth pains, until they will come to a cataclysmic result, an ending verse 34. Truly, I tell you, this generation, that sounds like present tense, doesn't it? This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What was he talking about? First question, the temple being destroyed. It did, 40 years later, in this generation. Jesus wouldn't say all these things, including the Great Tribulation, so we know he's going back to that first question there. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And they certainly have not, and that's what's guiding us today because we're still studying these words which give us hope to live faithfully for him. Now, see what I did there? We're looking at Daniel, and we're looking at these unusual and sort of perplexing numbers of days that Daniel is showing us here or that uh, the answer to Daniel has shown us. I didn't have 1260 days to explain this to you, the way that so many people have tried to do so. So I'm going to just sum up to quote Inigo Montoya, that is too much. Let me sum up. <laughs> I uh, did a deep dive into the lunisolar calendar of Babylonia. I had no idea about that, because I'm thinking, wait a minute, because if I start to apply certain numbers of days trying to come up with three and a half years in my calculator, it wasn't coming out right. <laughs> so I had to find out why. Are people misinterpreting it and just pushing their own agenda onto these things? And I thought, oh, okay, no, this is a calendar issue here. There's a very imprecise thing, their lunar solar calendar. They happen to do with some of the movements of both the, month, the sun and the moon. And sometimes it would come out to be an average of about 29 and a half days per month, about, give or take, depending on some of the harvest seasons and other things that they incorporated into their calendar. So when they needed to try to fill a gap, if they came up a little short, you know, like we do with leap year, they would say, well, we can add another short month by decree. That's handy. I mean, wouldn't that be great to say, I hereby decree that there's going to be a 13th month in the calendar and I shall name that month vacation can I get an amen? amen, I'd like to do that, but using the lunisolar Babylonian calendar, which comes out to approximately 30 days, but especially knowing that that's what they were using at the time when this was written, because Daniel had been exiled into Babylonia, that's what we have to go on, and it's confirmed later when there's some other passages that talk specifically about 42 months, then we go, okay, I get it now, yes, 1260, this is three and a half years, Whew took me a week to get there, took me three minutes to tell you about it, but now you've got it. Aren't you so glad? So if somebody comes up to you and says, so in the lunar solar calendar, lunar solar calendar of Babylonia, how many years would be 1260 days? You're gonna say three and a half years and you'll get it right. Here's some basic options that you need to consider when you read a wide variety of scholarly interpretations about how Daniel relates to Revelation because we see two differences in these numbers of days, which causes people to be quite perplexed about that. Here's some options to consider. Option one, 1260 days in Revelation equals three and a half years when the Antichrist in Revelation is referred to as the beast is successful in persecution. Okay, that lines up. Yep, sounds like what's been discussed in the Old Testament as well. Option two, John actually wrote Revelation prior to the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. Now he was an old man on the Isle of Patmos, but he wasn't an old enough man, but there's no mention of the temple being destroyed. It seems to me like probably he would have written something about that, and many scholars agree. So they're thinking that much of what's happening in terms of Revelation and what John wrote actually has to do with Antiochus IV and the temple destruction then in the first century. Now if that's the case, then perhaps we can see that there's a difference in the numbers of days because it's two different events. One was Antiochus, one was the Antichrist. All right, that's one good option. It does make sense, but if there's some parallelism going on in Revelation as well, and some is talking about Antiochus and other is predictive because God can certainly give people predictive knowledge like he did with Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the others then it could be that he's talking both about Antiochus and Antichrist. Is this so confusing to you yet? See why I find it very difficult to just nail it right down and say, I know without a doubt what exactly it means by 1260. Okay, option three, Daniel 1211 uses the number 1290 instead of 1260. What's up with that? Why the extra 30 days? Okay, here's some options about that. Sub-options, let's call them. (laughs) 30 days could represent the gap between the time when the daily sacrifices are stopped and the abomination of desecration is set up. Okay, maybe. I checked that one off in my personal list because I don't think that that really fits with the context, but it's fair to assume that that's a possibility. B, 30 extra days becomes the time of Jesus' judgment of the nations in the valley, the Kidron Valley, especially when we read some of those phrases that say that the mountain, the Mount of Olives Olives is going to be... Split in half and the valley is going to be widened. Now, that would certainly be an indicator that things are ramping up to that judgment time. And that could be one of the big events that we need to be looking for. Because if all these people are gathered into what was also known in the Old Testament as the valley of Jehoshaphat for the judging of the nations, maybe it takes 30 days for him to judge the nations. I don't know. It's a possibility. People offer that up. Joel 3 1 through 3 talks about that judgment. And then Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the separation of the sheep and the goats. It could be, that's what's happening in that time. We don't know for sure. C, another possibility for the difference in days by 30. The extra 30 days might be necessary for Jerusalem to rebuild because of the destruction wrought about uh, by the Antichrist. Possible, I don't know. Fourth option here in our list, Daniel 12 12 uses the number 1,335. Wow, yet another number. Blessed are those who hold out all the way to the end of this specific number. What's that one? Some believe that the additional 45 days may be the transition time when Jesus is initiating his reign on the earth, and he's putting all of his cabinet and his leaders in place. Maybe he's establishing his kingdom on earth at that time. That's kind of a good guess, but it's still a guess. So, the fifth option. The Antichrist deceives Israel, making them think that he is their protector. I'm all for you. I got your back. He's just going to stab him in the back because he brings about a false sense of peace, and then halfway through the final week, which would be the week of years, the final seven years that was that missing seven years that we talked about much earlier in this study, and then you get this three and a half years, and that's when things really go bad into that final three and a half years that is the Great Tribulation. And that's what many people think will probably be the outcome, looking through just the span of time, lining up a lot of these other things, but it doesn't show us specifically what the 1290, 1260, 1335 means. But wait, that's not all. The sixth option. Some believe that the time cut short for God's elect means that they will escape the worst part of the tribulation and be delivered in the middle of the seven years. That Kind of sounds like it could be, and yet if there's a time of peace and then they're delivered, then they're actually delivered before the three and a half years of actual tribulation. So that's why some people think the 1335 means you need to go beyond the three and a half of the time of peace into the 1335. And when we reach the 1335, so many believers will be killed off by then, two thirds of them, in fact, there'll only be a third left. And that's when they'll be delivered. There's a lot to consider, isn't there? <laughs> so much more than I thought when I uh, originally started diving into this. But to be cut short for the sake of the elect means I really believe that some believers are going to have to be alive on the earth during at least a portion of the tribulation. That much we can say definitively. So I have ruled out the pre tribulation in my mind because it doesn't seem to fit Revelation or Daniel and some of the other passages. In the New Testament as well. Always good to check in with Jesus, as I said, so let's do that again. Let's check in and see what does Jesus have to say on the subject in the remainder of Matthew 24. You ready to go there? Verse 36, but about that day or hour, let me be clear about that, no one knows. (laughs) How much more specific can he get? No one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. People were out there living their lives, doing their stuff. Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen. Why is that? Because the wicked shall continue to be wicked, and they will not get it. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's why the Noah and the ark is a foreshadowing of this event. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, because it will be a complete surprise to those who don't know the words and who are not watching and waiting for him, who are not plugged into him, who are not connected to him like branches in the vine, because it's going to be like that. Keep watch, because you do not know. Let me read that one more time. Keep watch. Why? Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Let me pause right there and say, if somebody tries to sell you a book that says, I've worked it all out, and I know the day that he's coming back, don't spend your money on the book, okay? All right, verse 43. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house be uh, let his house be broken into so you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour, just in case he hasn't been clear enough before when you do not expect him. (laughs) Reading Jesus words can you understand now why I become a little. this is my flesh speaking here, I become a little irritated when I read on the internet so many prophecy-related preachers who are trying to go way too deep into what they specifically think specific prophecies mean related to Jesus' second coming. Because I'm taking Jesus' words as being the most important words, and when I say that Daniel didn't quite understand it, he says, that's okay, go your way, live your life. You've done what you needed to do. You are faithful. Keep living faithfully. That's what Jesus is telling us we need to do too. Can I get an amen? All right. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. This sounds very much like some of the other parables that Jesus has said in the past, when he's saying that those who are wise stewards will be sharing in the inheritance. They'll be put in charge of much. He who is faithful in little, in charge of many things, and you'll be faithful in in much. That's that inheritance. We're going to be ruling with him in heaven, so to speak. There'll be a lot of good things happening to those folks. We're the people who are watching and being faithful. Verse 48, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, huh, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, to treat people really poorly. It doesn't sound very Christ-like in their treatment, does it? it? Sounds like a lot of the fruit of the flesh instead of the fruit of the spirit. If you can look at Galatians chapter five, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assigned to him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because they were not watching and they were not treating the fellow servants very well. Jesus' own words. Now, we can also see Jesus' own words to Daniel because he was Jesus incarnate, the one in the white robe, the one floating above the water. As for you, Daniel, go your way until the end. You will rest and then at the end of the days you will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. In other words, don't stop living. Don't even though things are bleak don't go and, and order 16 new credit cards and Max them out. Expecting that i'm coming back before the end of the month don't do that don't start living in such a way that you think you're the elite spiritual who are protected, and that you don't have to reach out to those outsiders like Jesus did. Don't think that we can start mistreating one another or others in the name of God and get away with it. You keep living your life, Daniel, and you keep living it faithful to me, and I will give you an inheritance because you can count on it. I promised that to you. Keep doing that. Keep staying plugged in to me, and you won't be surprised at all at the good things that will happen when they happen. Now, this is what I was thinking about leaving you with a cliffhanger and saying, that's all the time we've got today, so tune in next week for the answer to this question, what is the second abomination? But I'm gonna give it to you straight and I'm gonna give it to you now. So we're still galloping, hang in there with me. Paul gives us some insight here because of the New Testament from his letter to the believers in Thessalonica and it is so clear and he brings it right home and I love it, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. (laughs) Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us even, because there were false gospels written, as we know including the Gospel of Thomas and some others. Don't be fooled by that, Paul says. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the beast, is revealed, the one who brings destruction. I got good news for you, folks. I know without a doubt, and I can tell you this firmly, the Great Tribulation will not start in 2021. This hasn't happened yet. If it happens tomorrow, Maybe we got three and a half years of false peace, but it hasn't happened yet. Here it comes in verse 4 then. This answer to the question, the one who brings destruction. What is this great abomination though? What is the great abomination that's going to be worse even than the first one from Antiochus? Verse 4, He will exalt himself and defy, he who is he? The Antichrist, and will defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. He will set himself up. It's not a what, it's a who. The second abomination is the Antichrist, and Paul tells us that. Bum, bum, bum. That's big news, folks. When we see somebody who's making nicey-nice with Israel, even though we think, oh, good, he's got our best interests at heart. If there's a false sense of peace and a huge peace treaty coming about, folks, we've got the words right here. And then if we start to see some of the other signs that he was talking about and some of the escalations, the birth pains happening, getting closer and closer, and then suddenly we see somebody turning against Israel, we better start looking up. Instead of a graven image like Zeus or Jupiter, it's going to be, the Antichrist, placing himself as God in the temple, saying people should worship him, and he's going to have rule over the whole earth. He is the abomination of desolation. Verse 5, don't you remember that I told you about all this? Paul says, we've had this talk. I was with you. I was there teaching you in person. Don't you remember? You're already starting to get swayed by reading other people who are bestsellers with fiction. This is not fiction. I'm giving you the truth here, Paul says. And you know what is holding him back, the one who's restraining this evil from happening. That's God himself. He's the only one who can restrain that kind of evil. For he can be revealed only when his time comes. When God removes or withdraws his restraint, see Romans 1, 18 through 32, verse 7. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back God steps out of the way, and he says, enough. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Ah, do you see that? Man, that's important. So much of this is going to start to make so much sense to people who have been reading these words. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, and that's because God says, I've had enough, I'm releasing my restraint, and that's the beginning of that three and a half years of real great tribulation. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. That we have to look forward to as well. How long is it going to be before the end events come? Keep watching. Be a pan-millennialist. It's going to pan out as long as we're plugged into Jesus Christ. We can trust him. If we're on a need-to-know basis, he'll tell us when we have a need-to-know verse 9, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. 13a, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, meaning you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you who have placed your full weight Of trust on Him. Dear brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, we can't help but thank God for you. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, if you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're plugged into Him like branches in the vine, you can do nothing apart from Him, but through Him you can do everything related to your purpose, which is to show other people God's glory. That is our purpose, and we'll keep doing that no matter what happens, no matter how bad the birth pains get in our own lifetime. Maybe it's going to be in our lifetime. It could be. I don't know, but stand firm. Here's an encouraging word. Verse 15, with all these things in mind, Paul says, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. What is the teaching is the teaching about the gospel the death burial resurrection of jesus christ his appearance to witnesses his ascension to be with the father his being our advocate by being at the right hand of the father if we happen to be alive when these things take place we'll know these words we'll recognize it we can stand firm on that god will give true believers everything they need the grace and the strength they need in the moment we need it and not one moment sooner than that. Some of us in our lifetime may have to stand firm, even though it means being imprisoned, like it was with Paul, or killed for our faith. We've seen that happen in our lifetime with many people, not so much on, on our soil in America. We have really had it easy. Boy, you look at some of the uh, extremist groups over in Africa, some of the ways people are being persecuted, and many other countries in the world. You're going to have to stand firm. If it's a small, persecution, small tribulation with a small letter T, or if it's the great tribulation, he will give us the grace to stand firm no matter what is happening to us because we can ground ourselves on the foundation of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. We must prepare ourselves for that. How do we do that? We faithfully remain connected to each other through the word, connected as branches to the vine, and we must faithfully share the love with compassion, the truth of the gospel to other people, with compassion, with compassion, with compassion. Because we love people enough that if they're lost, we don't want them to be lost anymore. And we wanna say, because I love you so much, I don't want you to be lost. I want you to find what we've found, which is eternity through Christ. That's what motivates us to share the good news, not spiritual elitism, it's the love of Christ. Oh, boy, if we're ever being called to share the love of Christ, folks, sacrificially, it's now. We need to be the church that people know that we're the church because of our love for one another. So keep watch. Stand firm. Trust God. Let's pray. Father, you've given us an awful lot to consider in the book of Daniel. I'm so grateful for the New Testament and for your specific words through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who gives us the final words so that even though we're perplexed by some of those words in Daniel, we don't have to worry about it. We can trust you. That's the point of the whole purpose of the gospel is a relationship with the living Lord. You are our guide. You are who we look to. May we do that faithfully, filled with hope, in Jesus' name.